This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers. How do you change the wheels on the bus while the bus keeps moving? And how do you juggle the now and the next? You know, how do you build capability? How do you start testing and learning and really understanding what's working and and shifting your approach while you have to also deliver on what needs to be done today. That's the voice of Teresa Sperti. She's the Chief Marketing Officer at World Vision Australia. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. And I'm Michael Momsen. So, Michael, we're speaking to Teresa. She's a seasoned marketer working at brands like Officeworks, Coles Liquor and realestateview.com.au. She's held many senior leadership positions over the years. And now she's the Chief Marketing Officer at World Vision Australia. And World Vision is probably one of the most recognisable charities in the world. World Vision has been working towards eliminating poverty and all of its causes all around the world for over 50 years. And in 2016, 77 million children benefited from their programs. Now, we haven't spoken to uh, someone from a charity before, have we? So, uh, no. it's going to be an interesting chat. And so, one of the things we wanted to talk to Teresa about is how and why customer experience matters for a charity. We also talk about how they're transitioning into the digital age, moving from paper and pamphlets to mobile phones and websites. And of course, we ask that age-old question, should charities be spending money on marketing. Yeah, and we kick off the show by asking Teresa, what are some of the differences in going from marketing products and being quite sales focused to marketing a charity? There's actually a lot of parallels that exist between uh, marketing within the charitable space as well as marketing for a charity. One of those being that, you know, decisions that consumers make when it comes to travel or charity are very emotional and they're very personal driven decisions. Um, So there are a lot of really good parallels, which is great. But when it comes to uh, what's different, I think one of the biggest differences in marketing in the charity space is that um, unlike a holiday somebody who consumes a charity product won't necessarily experience it firsthand. And so one of the big challenges is how to bring what we do in the field as close to our supporters as possible throughout the customer experience. That's really interesting you talked about uh, emotion there. And, you know, emotion is important, I think, for a lot of businesses, a lot of brands. You're trying to build affinity with customers. But at the same time, you know, it's really difficult. <laughs> so, how do you how do you bring that into your communications? And also, mm. you know, you mentioned the word customer experience. I mean, this mm. is a customer experience podcast. How do you bring emotion into that journey and into those messaging opportunities? We touch some of the most vulnerable children in the world and, and that is full of emotion. Um, and our staff live and breathe that every single day. The challenge is then how you translate that emotion uh, to connect and engage with supporters and the broader um, public. And, you know, our focus and what we've been talking a lot about over the last nine months is really about how we can engender positive emotion uh, from supporters in the general public, uh, because a lot of the focus from a marketing perspective for the sector as a whole has been on um, 
driving action or outcomes through guilt or sadness. And the reality is the work we do is absolutely incredibly sad uh, and incredibly challenging. But if you look at some of the transformational change we make in communities, uh, it is extremely uplifting and very, very empowering. And so our role is really about how do we demonstrate that when we engage with our supporters, whether that be through one-to-one channels right through to our above the line uh, activity. I understand you um, are passionate about customer experience yourself actually and you're the first guest that we've had from a charity and so I'm, I'm actually really interested in how you're thinking about customer experience in a charity context. Mm. You know what, what are some some things that where, where you can bring that to life? A lot of what you've just covered is some of the things that we think about in the charity space every single day. It's it's about, you know, making it delightfully simple for our supporters and the general public to engage with us and that requires removing friction. However, obviously we're working in an intangible space and I often think about how we need to make what is the invisible visible. A lot of the work we do overseas is, you know, it's very far removed from our day-to-day. So how can we actually make the experience relevant for our supporters and the general public? Uh, But when I think about supporter experience or customer experience, I'm really focused on both the backstage and centre stage. So backstage is what I... Uh, refer to as what happens in the field and what happens internally, uh, as well as um, the centre stage, which is what a supporter will actually see. And it's really important that when you develop experience, you're looking at both sides of the equation because great experience is delivered through um, in the charity context from field right through to market. And do you have some examples of where you either have made some optimizations or changes or just where you think that you execute this particularly well in terms of connecting, you know, what's happening on center stage, as you say, Mm. back, you know, emotionally to uh, the supporter. So one of the things we're working through at the moment is um, a program to improve the experience uh, for those donors that are supporting our child sponsorship product. And what we've been looking at is where are some of the friction points in the experience and then how do we actually optimise that experience from looking at, you know, how do we actually collect content in the field and actually uh, connect and engage with the supporter in the way that they want to. So, you know, how do we reinvigorate our experience from a self-service perspective on site so they can learn more about what's happening in their community right through to how we can proactively communicate what's happening in the community and with the child that they've actually chosen to support so that's an example that's uh, that's currently in train uh, and should give you a feel of how we actually think about um, experience when it comes to the charity sector and, and World Vision specifically. When I was a child, like at home, actually my parents supported uh, World Vision and you'd get the sort of monthly letters and you'd have the picture and you'd get the story and uh, I think, you know, even once a year you may get a hand, you know, a written Christmas card or something like that from from the child that you supported, et cetera. I imagine there's lots of opportunities now in a digital era with, you know, smartphones available, you know, now even across, um, you know, very vulnerable places, the, the smartphone and internet penetration is, you know, getting higher and higher. Have there been ways to sort of modernise the way that that story is being told, uh, you know, away from the, the sort of monthly paper letter? 
And that's absolutely what we're looking at and focusing on at the moment. We've been doing a lot of test and learning last year and coming into this year to look at how we can modernise that experience. You know, what you say is right. Um, That experience, child sponsorship has been operating um, for 50-odd years um, and it's important that we adapt and evolve uh, the way in which we engage our supporters, which again, you know, encompasses everything from field right through to market because the way in which data and content is collected in the field inevitably impacts the type of experience that we can actually provide to our supporters. What's an example of some of the things you're working on then, mm. those tests and learns and like what are the mm. results you've seen? Because I'm really mm. interested to kind of dig underneath the hood and go like, obviously child sponsorship's been been around for 50 years, but like how are you modernising it today? There's literally a program that's running from October through to March, which is looking at how do we digitise the experience right through to um, how we improve some of the friction points. So some of the friction points we have are things like project closures when we're finishing in a community because we've finished setting up a community yeah, and we've been in that community for a long time and that experience is very paper-based um, and we're looking to move it into a digital era but also at the same time it's about improving the experience overall. So it's not just about digital mm. uh, because it's a very delicate point in the supporter journey. Because somebody has built a very personal connection with that child in that community and good development is about, you know, creating a sustainable change within a community so a community can operate without needing the organisation to continue to exist in that community. Mm -hmm. But for the donor who's grown up with uh, that child and built a personal connection, it's actually – it's such a good news story. Yeah, you want to celebrate that. It's a major milestone, yeah. Yeah, but if it's not handled well, it can actually result in a very poor supporter experience. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at how can we better communicate with the supporter um, at that kind of key touch point, of which part of that will involve improvement in digital communication so we connect and engage th- with them before you know, the closure actually happens and we can connect in a more personalised way rather than a standard response. Is there a role for, you know, smartphones and a direct sort of communication from, uh, you know, either the village that's being um, helped, you know, or, you know, directly from the child that's being sponsored? Have you experimented with that? Because I could imagine Mm. that could be, you know, really, really powerful. Yeah, so one of the things, uh, you know, mobile absolutely plays a role and we operate in a large number of communities and and in some very remote areas. So access to internet and technology varies across the programs and areas for which we work. And so that creates its own unique challenges from an experience perspective. But one of the mantras we have internally is how do we bring the window to the field to our supporters, which is all about, you know, how we create immediacy and, you know, enable supporters to engage real time and and to do that, you know, channels like social become really important, Um, uh, mobile becomes inherently important. And so we've got a lot of ideas um, in terms of the role of um, those channels and how we can start to bring that mantra to life um, as part of our strategy. I mean, storytelling is central to our approach. Uh, we, as I talked about before, we, you know, what we do is intangible and storytelling is the way that we can demonstrate impact and um, 
demonstrate what we actually do and achieve in the field. So, I wanted to ask about customer journey mm-hmm. and, you know, um, I, I can probably see Michael's cringing when I say the word customer journey because, you know, he, you're not a big fan of uh, of jargon, um, <laughs> but I think it's kind of impossible to, to talk about a customer journey without mentioning those words, customer journey. So, I want to talk about customer journey and, and ask you about, you know, well, I suppose it's more of a supporter journey mm. for you guys here yes. and, and like, what does that, what does that look like and how are you thinking about how it is today and, and mm. how you're going to optimize it? So we actually, the first thing to say is that we actually think a lot about our supporter journey, both pre and post. And, and the reason why supporter journey is so important for us is that we operate in a space uh, one of the most competitive industries in Australia. Uh, there are about 54,000 charities uh, and not-for-profits <laughs> that exist. I, I just hadn't even thought of when you say it's the most competitive space. I never <laughs> would have thought of charities. So that's the first important point. And therefore, understanding a supporter journey is paramount for us. When it comes to the type of supporters we serve, we serve the general public, um, mum and dads, school-aged children, etc., right through to corporates, philanthropists, as well as institutional donors being the government. And so the journey to which um, their, their journeys all differ and differ greatly. But what's really important for us is to understand, uh, you know, needs, motivations of our respective donors and their individual journeys. And so, you know, over the last six to nine months uh, since I took the role at World Vision, we've been spending a lot more time understanding um, those journeys and and that's shaping everything from how we create campaigns and make decisions about marketing campaigns right through to how we actually develop products. And over the past few months, we've just rolled out a new product development process which hinges on or is contingent on human-centred design and that really enables us to put the supporter at the centre of product development, uh, which is a big shift for us as an organisation. You mentioned something there that, that I didn't expect. You mm. said the word product development. Mm. What does that mean in the context of what World Vision does? Sure. When we talk about product development, what we are talking about is the propositions for which our supporters engage. So, if we think about something like child product, um, child sponsorship, that is actually a product for World Vision. Um, and products essentially are made up of packaging of um, what we do in the field, so projects that we do in the field, and packaged up in a way in which um, our donors can engage with them ongoing. Um, but what's critically important to any product we create is the experience because, again, we're dealing with, um, you know, we're in an a- intangible space and we need to make the invisible visible. And to do that, um, experience is paramount. You mentioned uh, human-centered design, and I'm a big, big, big fan of this. And, and for those who may not be aware, it's effectively a process that you follow to ensure uh, customer centricity or user centricity. Could you maybe give us an, an example of where, you know, this human-centered design thinking has made an impact on, sure. you know, where you maybe would have just sort of either rushed something out the door before and how you've taken this approach and how, how that's really then, and you may not have delivered it yet, but, you know, how that, that you feel confident that will really deliver, you know, a great uh, user-centric uh, outcome. 
Our 40 Hour Famine is a 40 plus year old campaign that we've been running. Great campaign, by the way. It's amazing. <laughs> mm. It's as part of the zeitgeist yeah. of, of, you know, culture. It is. And it's a youth based campaign. And um, the way in which we engage youth for that campaign is we actually engage the schools and therefore uh, we engage teachers. And, you know, one of the big challenges uh, we've had is about, you know, in this day and age, teachers are, you know, again, they've got increasing demands, workloads, the curriculum continues to evolve. And so, um, you know, we need to ensure as an organisation that we're relevant not only to the the youth and the students that get involved but also the teachers. And so understanding their journey, their pain points um, around their increasing workload when they start to plan their curriculum for the following year enables us to ensure that the the proposition and experience that we create is relevant for them and their needs. Um, And, you know, we've from 2017, one of the big learnings for us was that um, the teacher's planning cycle occurs before we're actually going to market with our campaign, which makes it <laughs> which makes it extremely difficult for them to plan um, forty hour famine as part of their classroom uh, activity, and so that has completely shifted our approach uh, for the FY eighteen campaign. I mean, that's such a great example because I could imagine that, you know, historically you kind of maybe make a brochure that explains to a student why this is a good thing, you know, or like sort of try to factually, um, you know, convince maybe the parent that, you know, it's actually not a bad, mm. you know, not a bad thing, your kid's starving, but maybe the teachers had been forgotten about historically. Mm. So actually taking in this human-centered design, you know, really helps highlight, oh, oh my gosh, yeah, like the teachers have all this on their plate and what have you, you know, how do we slot into that and, you know, kind of address one of their pain points or, you know, what is it they care about? Um, mm. So that's, that's a one. Wonderful example. Thank you for sharing. Working closely with the schools has always been an area of focus, but I think once you start shifting and thinking uh, and getting into the mind <laughs> and understanding the journey of uh, those you're trying to engage, it yes. can start to drive a very different conversation internally in terms of how you approach a particular problem or a campaign and how you're going to go about solving it. Teresa, welcome to the quick fire round where we ask you questions and you have 10 seconds to answer each of them. So, it's really the first thing that comes to your mind okay. and it's to get to know the, the lady behind the job uh, a little bit more. I can see you laughing already, yes. which is a good, <laughs> a good start. I know where this is going. <laughs> um, so, Michael and I are going to trade blows. I'll, I'll kick us off um, and if you take too long, we'll bring the buzzer out. Okay. So, question number one, what brand do you look up to? You can't go past Apple uh, for their amazing customer experience. What uh, skill are you terrible at? Public speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Can I say that? <laughs> why do we Why do we get you on a podcast? <laughs> no, no, it's. Uh... <laughs> All right. Next one is: What book or books have made an impact on you, and why? So I recently read Gail Kelly's book. And I think it was a really good reflection um, for myself on what great leadership looks like. Mm. And equally, I just finished reading uh, a book on service design, Insight to Implementation, and that was also a really good read. What are your favourite podcasts? Oh, my favourite podcast. That's an easy one. Generally, um, I really enjoy true crime. And so uh, anything of that genre uh, tends to be something that I enjoy. 
Uh, I do tend to listen to some industry podcasts, um, CMO being one of them. What's an ideal weekend look like for you? I enjoy being busy and it's spending time with my friends and family, particularly my four-year-old son, Max. Nice. Love it. So let's talk about digital because, uh, you know, World Vision is an organisation that's been around for a long time um, and historically has operated with really like direct mail and paper and brochures mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And, you know, Teresa, your background is very strong with digital marketing and CRM and, and customer experience, those kinds of areas. Firstly, how are you thinking about digital transformation mm. um, at World Vision in your mm. role here? So, you've Definitely um, correctly identified my background (laughs) and the choice to bring me on as CMO was driven by the focus of the organisation to deliver digital transformation. When I think about digital transformation, because it's a term that's actually used a lot (laughs) by a lot of different organisations and executives and it it can mean very, very different things. Uh, For an organisation that's looking to transform, I think... One of the most important things is leadership and and that might sound a little bit cliche, but to drive digital transformation, you absolutely need strong leadership within the organisation, setting the vision and, you know, educating the organisation what that means and what that looks like. Uh, What I always also think about when it comes to digital transformation is the importance of the capabilities that support an organisation to actually make the shift in a digital world uh, to leverage digital more effectively as part of their business model. And what that means to me is it's not just about the tech. So, you know, we often talk about digital transformation and tech is usually one of the first topics that comes up. And for me, what's important about driving digital transformation is, you know, focusing on people and process as much as you focus on technology. And that's definitely what we've been, you know, doing so far uh, in our journey here at World Vision. Um, You know, we have brought in a number of um, new talent hires to enable us to drive uh, change uh, and shift our approach. But also we have, you know, looked at reskilling the existing team. We've moved to agile processes um, to to be more iterative uh, in our approach and and that's being leveraged in various ways across the organisation. Um, and technology, don't get me wrong, is incredibly important. And, and you know, we're, we're um, looking at investing in, in several areas from a tech perspective, but it is one element. But ultimately, I think to drive um, transformation and sustainable transformation, you need to get people on the journey and you need to drive excitement and belief. Uh, and you do that through demonstrating through action. <laughs> totally. What's exciting you about this new digital future? And I don't want to, you know, be too corporate and like it's great to highlight that we we need to talk about tech and people and processes and stuff like that. But like, mm. what does it all kind of mean? Ultimately, it enables us to deliver uh, a great supporter experience. And, you know, yeah. our supporters have, um, you know, donor expectations are rising in market Um Charities more than ever before need to demonstrate efficiency, need to be transparent in the way that they operate. And digital really affords the ability to do that um, uh, un- in ways that, you know, traditional mediums can't. Uh, I think equally, once you start leveraging digital effectively, it can start 
opening up new market opportunities which um, and, and enable an organisation to play in spaces that it hasn't traditionally. And that's really, really exciting as well. Maybe it might be useful to actually define how you think about digital actually because a lot of people say digital and then they think advertising more in digital mm-hmm. or, yeah. um, oh, it's a social media team. Um, but how do you define digital and then what are the main pains that you're looking to address um, with, with, with that change? So how do I define digital? It's a really good question because I just do. <laughs> um, Isn't 2018 the year of the mobile for like the 18th year running? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, when I think of digital, I, talk about, I think about organisations leveraging digital in the modern world. So it's not about digital transformation. It's about transformation within a modern world of which digital is a key component of that. It's not the only component of what's driving disruption, etc., but it is obviously a key shift in the way that organizations engage. And yes, when I talk about digital, I think I think it's a good point. A lot of organizations when they talk about digital might be referring to digital marketing or um, the site and, and the subsequent experience. Um, when we think about digital, we think about um, what uh, we need to do from a transformation perspective from field to market. So that could be anything from how do we capture content in the field and how do we then distribute that to our supporters in a way that's highly engaging? Um, how do we deliver a better experience, again, from field to market? And how does digital um, technologies actually enable that? What are some of the challenges about, you know, rethinking how you engage customers, supporters, Mm. how you capture content? You know, like Mm. it seems to me like a lot of your role is kind of future thinking about how the organisation is going to move into, you know, 2019, 2020 and beyond. Mm. What are the challenges to actually Mm. doing that? Anyone who's driving a shift in approach is that, you know, you you inevitably have to go through a process of reviewing structures, ways of working, etc. And that takes time to build capability. And the reality is, is, you know, the market continues to change and evolve. So, you know, that's always a challenge that you face when you're operating in a space like this. Equally, I'd say one of the biggest challenges, and it's not unique to World Vision, it's probably a challenge that I've faced in a number of my previous roles as well, is, you know, how do you change the wheels on the bus while the bus keeps moving? And how do you really you know, juggle the now and the next. So, you know, how do you build capability? How do you start testing and learning and really understanding what's working and and shifting your approach while you have to also deliver on what needs to be done today? And as I said, that's not unique to World Vision, but it is something that, you know, senior marketers face as a challenge. And it's really difficult because you need to find a way to, to juggle both. It's about focus. And it's about discipline mm. to ensure that you're focused on the right things. <laughs> I imagine culture is a big part of that as well, right? Like in terms of the old way of doing things and mindset changes, like all come in with that mix. Absolutely. Culture is um, probably the biggest enabler or disabler of success. I'm going to switch gears and ask you the hard question, Teresa. Sure. Which um, if people don't ask it from someone ask, mm. from from someone working in charity, no doubt they're thinking it, which is, um, 
you know, why do we spend so much money on marketing or, you know, uh, you know, all, all this headcount when, you know, that mm. could be money, you know, spent in the field. And, you know, I'm sure um, you both address that potentially personally in one-on-one conversations, but it's probably very important to communicate uh, in the messaging, right? Because, mm. you know, if I, if I donate $50, I want to make sure that I, you know, get the best bang for the cause that I care about. So, you'd know, be mm. interested in how you um, deal with that pressure. You're absolutely right. Unlike, you know, when you're working in a corporate environment, um, the scrutiny around the marketing budget isn't there. Or I'll, you know, it might be there from from your CFO, <laughs> but it's not there from the general public at large. <laughs> that's true. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of it like that, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's justified and it's right. Um, you know, we are entrusted with people's hard-earned money to do a very important job, which is to help the world's most vulnerable children and, um, you know, we need to ensure and demonstrate every single day that um, we are using those funds most effectively. However, what I would say is that to drive, um, to impact as many children as possible and expand our footprint in the field uh, to reach the most vulnerable children and deepen our impact, we do need to grow our supporter base and that requires investment in marketing. And And when I think about marketing dollars and spend, I really think about it as an investment, not a cost, because through the investment, we're able to grow our base, which uh, enables us to generate more funds to increase the amount of programming we do in the field. That means we touch more children and change more people's lives. Yeah, and I think like us three can agree with that and, mm. you know, we've got marketing backgrounds totally. and, and we kind of understand the premise and the logic behind that. Mm. But I don't know if the general public does, you know, there's there's a lot of um, rhetoric around that and how do you communicate that message mm. that you've summed up so eloquently to us mm. in a nice packaged piece of mm. comms to, to a supporter who's yeah. maybe a little bit doubtful and a little bit sceptical and that kind of thing? I think the main one of the main things to communicate because uh, all of this hinges on um, efficiency. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. It's about uh, a charity being efficient with the funds um, that it's entrusted with. And you know, I can very proudly say that at World Vision, eighty-one point four percent of our funds go to the field. Oh wow, that's an incredible stat. For some reason, I had like fifty-fifty in my mind. Like that's sort of mentally where I thought things. That's that's a huge yeah. stat. Is that is that above industry norm? No, it's definitely not. You know, you've got some um, some players uh, that might be slightly lower um, in terms yep. of their their cost to to funds to field, and some that are that are that are higher. Um, we strive to keep our costs as low as possible so we yep. can maximise funds to the field, uh, and and really that's how you communicate it from a marketing yep. perspective. Is what is the portion that goes goes to the field? Because I think I think the general public is. We're dealing with educated people and they do understand that there is a portion that, of course, has to go to administration and and um, some of that goes to marketing. Of course. It's just the degree to which those funds are going to um, pay for administrative costs and marketing costs. And the um, response I just got from you is the type of response we get from donors when they understand that, you know, 81.4% of their funds are going to field. That's a really great message, and and I guess just to kind of um, uh, jump on on the on the back of that or to continue on, 
when you're developing communications with customers, and we spoke before about customer journeys and that kind of thing, but you know, when when you're actually communicating directly with a customer, what types of campaigns drive the best results in terms mm. of new donor uptake and retention of existing um, donors as well? Mm. There's a lot of test and learn occurring in the campaign space. But what really struck me when I started working for World Vision is that many international charities compete in the same way, which is on the basis of guilt or sadness and an immediate need, really. Um, It's about, you know, a, a starving child. When I went to the field, so in August, I actually had the opportunity to to visit Cambodia and see the work that we do firsthand. And it is truly transformational. And what struck me was, this is not what I see when I'm the average consumer in market. And so, you know, the question I'm always asking my team is, how do we bring the supporter closer to that work and demonstrate what we do and demonstrate the impact that we make uh, in a positive light because ultimately, you know, there are a number of charities that exist and sometimes it's very hard for consumers or supporters or donors to choose who they're going to support and and, uh, what's important is for donors and supporters to be able to understand what makes us different and unique and why you would choose World Vision to make your impact um, uh, for the lives of, of most vulnerable people. And so that's what I think about when it comes to communications. It's about, you know, how we can bring positive stories to life and uh, engender positive emotion and how we can um, bring our story to life um, so we can differentiate in market. You talk really about two broad approaches. One is one that I suppose pulls on the guilt, um, mm. drawstrings and, you know, all the the sad stuff that's going on and then you kind of feel guilty and you want to help. You know, the other one mm. is the story that shows almost like the before and after and the, the positive uplift and therefore I want to be involved in that uh, positive change. Which campaigns get the best results actually? Because I'm sure <laughs> people don't continue to put uh, the guilt and the sad uh, sadness sort of message if it's not working like does mm. that work better mm. but you know maybe mm. we should be doing more of the the positive change uh, pieces yeah it's a really good question and one that I've been grappling with <laughs> since I started so uh, sadness and guilt drives an immediate response um, or you know that immediate need drives action uh, but one of the challenges it's it creates for brands is that um, like world vision is you know have we not done anything to improve the lives of uh, children over our 50, 60 years of operation? And, um, you know, if you look at the communities that we've served and the impact we've made and and um, how many children we've reached um, over our long history, it's phenomenal. Uh, but people don't see that. They see that there's still a starving child so, you know, whilst it has a good impact from a might drive short-term donation, it can have broader brand impacts and that can have a significant impact over time from your ability to generate revenue. So, it's about, you know, uh, driving and, compa- you know, driving people to to actively engage, but doing it in a way in which supports your ability to achieve your objective short-term and long-term as a brand. 
I actually want to explore this one level deeper, which is if I was to like really analyze what's going on from a donor's point of view, I'm sort of relieving myself of some sort of guilt and I want to make myself feel better. And it's ultimately serving my own ego when I give to a charity, right? The work is, you know, excellent. So I'm not taking away from that. But mm. like, how deeply have you dug into that actually? And or is that kind of like almost a no-go zone because you sort of don't want to touch about the, the ego, which is really the main mm. driving motivator? So I don't really think about it as ego, but I definitely think about the value exchange which exists between um, the donor and um, the recipients in the field. And the reality is is that actually there's an, an emotional fulfilment benefit that is gained from... Oh, that's good. I like that emotional Yeah, that is gained from uh, donating. And... Um, and that is absolutely um, what we talk about internally um, is around what, you know, the Australian public and our supporters get from supporting. We enable their ability to make impact in the field. Teresa, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. All right. Welcome to The Debrief. Really interesting discussion with Teresa. This is our first charitable organisation that we've uh, had featured yeah, on really the show. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And it was kind of interesting, you know, we've spoken to a lot of customer-facing brands, but um, not those that are in the not-for-profit sector. And uh, there was kind of mm. some interesting um, differences and, and ways of approaching things that Teresa brought to light. Yeah, no, I hadn't really thought about charities putting a lot of focus around customer experience and the, the processes that they go through. But, you know, as we were talking, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much to do. Like, just all those paper processes and... You know, the opportunities are really exciting, right? Like, I mean, I was coming up with ideas on the fly yeah. as well in terms of, you know, you know the, 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 the communities that they're helping. You know, there's chances uh, for them to do like video sort of blog updates that, you know, gets shared on, you know, like closed social groups. And, you know, there's an opportunity to feel more connected than ever before to the good that you're impacting. And um, that's really, really exciting. But it's also probably a big challenge to really pull that off. Absolutely. So, uh, the the practical takeaways that we can learn from this yeah, episode. Yeah, let's, let's jump into this. What did you have first, Michael? Human-centered design, uh, also known as design thinking. I'm a, I'm a big believer in it as well, and I loved it. And I, I loved how there was this you know practical example of um, it, it it coming to life in terms of them being able to change. Um, the way that they approach something because they really did take a, a, a user-centric view of a process beforehand and, and taking that in. Um, and maybe just a couple of tips because, you know, we can't all afford to go out and hire a um, design agency to help us with, uh, <laughs> you know, sticky uh, stickies all over whiteboards for two days <laughs> while we all, uh, you know, hang out uh, <laughs> and drink eight cups of coffee. And so, you know, there's a couple of resources that I found personally really helpful Um uh, two books by Strategizer. Uh, you can see them at strategizer.com. One's called Value, Proposi- Value Proposition Design. Um, excellent book. Recommend the hard copy. If not, uh, you know, grab it on your iPad. Um, and if you if you need to think about something around like generating money off a new offer and you're sort of mucking around with like new product offers or uh, go to markets, they've got one called Business Model Generation, which is good. Um, and just finally, there's another one that uh, I found really helpful, which is called The Field Guide to Human-Centered Design. Um, and you can get that at Design designkit.org. So, uh, a couple of resources there, a bit of a long tip, but um, yes, I'm pretty passionate about this one and it, it, it will really have an impact when you think about, you know, building new processes, building new product offerings. 
So it's funny that you talk about human-centered design because um, one of the examples that Teresa was speaking about was the 40-hour famine campaign, which is largely unchanged for, for right. many, many years. And again, we mentioned it during the interview, but super powerful campaign. But um, I was really shocked when Teresa said they kind of mucked it up last year. Um, because <laughs> they're trying to promote it through schools and they kind of fail to see that um, the, the teacher, which is really the, the stakeholder that was delivering the campaign to the end user, end user yes. being the student, they, they didn't get the material to them early enough for it to be part of their you know, term planning and their, and their lesson planning. And so, I think it was just a really, a really nice reminder that you need to think about all stakeholders in the process because, you know, as much as it's the kids that are, that are doing the, the activity and raising funds from their parents and friends and that kind of thing, um, it's the teachers that are the, the facilitator. And so, if you miss that deadline, then you're not going to get the best possible outcome because they don't have enough time to plan for it and enough time to put all the energy into it. Yeah, and another thing that stood out for me was how she used the terminology backstage and center stage. We also heard that from Dennis on our Disney episode, and I really quite like that terminology, and I'm probably going to steal it and start using it internally because it's just a nice way of thinking when building a process or something that is, um, you know, going to impact the customer experience. There's both backstage elements, and then there's very much a center stage element, and I think we often gravitate towards the center stage um, piece because that's the bit that's very tangible and very visible, uh, and it's what the customer sees, but it's also very, very important to, you know, think about all the backstage elements in, in many in in many ways, probably more important. So, I really quite liked using that terminology. And maybe just to contrast that with uh, the episode we did with Dennis from Disney, um, Dennis was quite against letting the public see the backstage elements of things because right. he thought, you know... Part of the magic. Yeah, the Disney magic is about presenting um, just like a, right. a magical piece in front of you and not seeing all the workings behind the scenes. However, Teresa was actually had the opposite approach and I think it's probably because mm. uh, a really key pillar for a charity is that you need to be transparent and um, you know it's just interesting how different different brands and different industries have to have different approaches uh, another one that I had was you know we spoke a lot about digital transformation during the interview and it's something that World Vision is um, in the midst of at the moment uh, and right. uh, it's something that a lot of businesses are actually going through but one thing that Teresa said you know there's obviously big opportunities to um, to transitioning towards a more modern way of working uh, but what I found interesting was Teresa said it's not about the technology. And I think a lot of the time we get hung up on the tech. You know, mm. we need to buy this CRM, we need to buy this software, we need to whatever. Um, you know, thinking that the tech is actually the problem. Um, what she was kind of saying was, uh, don't worry so much about the tech. You need to invest in capabilities with people and with processes. So, she talked a lot about hiring people who have um, different capabilities and skill sets that can actually bring that to life. And then engendering a culture... And, uh, and having a really strong leadership that brings that to life. Yeah, that reminds me of a great uh, quote from, from Bill Gates in this point, which is, the first rule of any technology used in a business uh, that automation is applied to make it more efficient, magnify its efficiency. Um, but if that automation or that technology is applied to an inefficient operation, it's going to magnify that inefficiency. So, um, you know, it's important to think about, you know, what business process you have in place because all the technology is going to do is make it even better or make it even worse. All right. So, in summary, our four takeaways were... Really uh, leverage as much as you can human-centered design uh, and design thinking. There's lots of great resources out there. Mine was to always consider all of the stakeholders that are involved in developing or executing uh, your campaign. It might not just be the end customer. 
Yeah, and the, the third one was there can be a lot of value in thinking about your customer experiences in the context of backstage and center stage. And finally, when you're going through a digital transformation to improve customer experience, don't just invest in technology. You also need to invest in people and process. I should mention, if you've been listening to customer experience leaders and have found this valuable, then something that really helps us out a lot is just sharing it with a friend. Um, one thing that I find is, you know, as I come across podcasts that I love is that um, probably, and you may have found this yourself, like I've, I've turned at least 10 or 12 people into uh, regular podcast fans <laughs> that really didn't listen to podcasts before. I literally grab their phone and go, here's the podcast app and let me like put a couple in straight away that you love. You know, if you could do that, that would be a a huge help. If you want to send us a photo or a screenshot of something happening where you've shared it with a friend, we'll even find a nice way to say thank you. So, um, yeah, that that would be amazing. Uh, You can always catch me at michael at ratedapp.com. I love that idea. And uh, you can catch me on adam at wavelength.audio. Customer Experience Leaders is a co-production of Rate It, the market leader in on-the-spot customer feedback, and Wavelength, podcast strategy and execution for brands. This wonderful episode was produced by Nick Jones, Christopher Lawson, and me, Adam Jaffrey. And our amazing audio editor and mixer is Josh Armour. Our theme music is by Icolix, Peter Cooley, and The Shrugs. If you like this episode, please subscribe, but more importantly, please tell a friend. Send them a text, an email, uh, maybe a tweet. Do people still tweet? But uh, friends, colleagues and family are the number one way that people hear about amazing new content and it would really help us out. And finally, if you are a customer experience geek, you know, you love CX and customer centricity, but you're struggling to get really valuable feedback from customers through the traditional methods like mystery shoppers and surveys and things like that, it's worth having a chat to the team at Rated. They are experts in gathering on-the-spot customer feedback in a simple and effective way. You can book a time to speak to them at the website rateitapp.com. That's R-A-T-E-I-T-A-P-P.com. I'm Adam Jaffrey. Thank you for listening. And we'll speak to you next time on Customer Experience Letters. Listener.